This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. All right, everybody. Welcome to Rico Bronia. Remember when we were excited? Remember when we were pumped up? Remember when there was a winning streak? And oh, look at this. The Mets are hot. They may get back into the race. Hoffman's bald. It's all because of that, that the Mets are hot. Well, they have lost back-to-back games, or they lost back-to-back games to the San Diego Padres. They lose the three-game series to the San Diego Padres. They allowed Joe Musgrove to stick it up their ass yet again. Max Scherzer, again in a big spot, comes up small. And if you would have told me a week ago, hey, the Mets are going to go out west, they're going to take on the Diamondbacks and the Padres, and they're going to go 4-2, and two, I think we all would have been like, okay, not bad. But when you win the first four and you lose the last two, especially the way they did with an absolutely limp offense and just a terrible start by Max, I don't want to say it ruins the entire six-game winning streak, but they lost a lot of the goodwill from the six-game winning streak. Because not that we figured they were going to win eight in a row going into the break or they were going to win 18 in a row, but to lose back-to-back games, especially the way they did against a Padre team that has been as big, if not a bigger disappointment than the Mets, is an absolute buzzkill. So now we all get to sit around for a week, wait until Friday when they play the Dodgers. And the truth is what we have just seen over the last week is probably a lot of what we're going to see in the second half of the year. They're not a bad team. They'll win some games. They'll suck us in. They'll get us excited. And then they're going to kick us in the groin when it matters. Now, let me start with Max. We'll go through all three games. We'll preview the early part of the second half of the season. Uh, A lot of news and notes. We'll read a lot of your emails. So there's obviously a lot to get to. But let me start with the end. And the end is Max Scherzer. Because Max Scherzer has made 16 starts for the Mets this season. And they've actually won 10 of those 16 games. So when you think about it that way, you'd say, hey, when he's on the mound, the Mets have a better chance to win. And that's been the truth. But when you look at those six losses and you look at them individually, you realize that a lot of those six games were the biggest games the Mets played in 2023. Think about it. The game against the Atlanta Braves. You're in the midst of a three-game series against the team. You're trying to exercise your demons against. At that point, the Mets are actually in a race. The Mets hand them a big lead. He proceeds to blow it. One of the biggest games of the year. The game against the Yankees. Again, middle of June, Mets at a funk. Maybe they'll break out of it. They hand them a 5-1 to one lead, and he can't get through the fourth inning of that game. Even the Brewer game, that start from about a week and a half ago, the finale of a four-game series, a chance to get a split, a chance to not lose another series in the month of June. And he wasn't, like, awful in that start, but they lost that game. And that's really been the story. When Max Scherzer has started the biggest games of his Met career, he's come up small. And I'm not even, you know, wasting our time on last year because we all know about last year. We all know about game number 159, whatever the hell it was, final three games against the Braves before they played the three meaningless games against Washington, how small he came up there, the playoff game against San Diego, and it continued. And what shocked me, what stunned me is you people. You people, you Met fans, and I'll tell you exactly why. I haven't tweeted much in the last week, 
but I put up a poll this morning after I got back from playing fan baseball, and my pitching performance was far worse than Max's. I'll leave it at that, okay? I, I hit well, two hits, two for four, a couple of RBIs, stunning. But when I took the mound, oh, my God, I basically crapped all over the mound. But I get back from playing baseball, and I put up a very innocent poll. And it was a snap poll, you know, one of those polls that's only up for a couple of hours. And it was, I'll tell you exactly how I wrote it. Met fans, we are playing a huge game today. And Max Scherzer, who has come up small in every big spot as a Met, is starting. Do you have any faith he delivers a clutch performance? Yes or no? Very straightforward, very simple. And I'm even leading with the way I asked the question because I'm ripping Max in the question. Just in case you forgot, he comes up small in every start. And the poll was up there for, I'd say, two hours, brief amount of time. We got 5,000 votes, decent sample size. And I was expecting it to be 90-10. No, I have no confidence in Max. Like, why would you? If you're a Met fan, you're basing your feelings on Scherzer, and Verlander for that matter, on what they've done here. You're not thinking about Game 7 of the World Series. You're not thinking about any big game you pitched for Detroit or Washington because it's irrelevant to us, just like we never thought about Tom Glavin's big performances as an Atlanta Brave. And yet, it was only 55-45 no. How is that possible? How, as a Met fan, did you come into the game on Sunday with faith that Max Scherzer was going to twirl a quality game? Like, what? What the hell was it based on? He's never done it for the Mets in his career. He's had good performances. But in any game, he's towed the rubber in like a big game, however you want to define it. He has either completely crapped the bed or he's been just good enough to lose. So how the hell did 45% of you before this game have confidence Max was going to deliver? Can you answer me that one, Pete? I think that they were probably um, under the influence when they took that poll question. Under the influence of what? Hey, they won six out of seven. I feel good. Blah, oh, no. blah, blah. Some sort of alcoholic beverage or some sort of illegal substance or maybe legal substance. Who knows? But they were definitely under the influence of something that tricked their mind into thinking, ah, everything's all good. Listen, it, I, I got to be honest, dude. I never expected him to perform well. I expected them to lose this game because just the, the Joe Musgrove, we can't touch him aspect too. But Max Scherzer, I mean, he, he is just completely lost. Like you said, I, never in a big spot. I think maybe what confused Met fans is that, and I always want to be honest about it, his last, you know, four starts have mostly been quality. They've mostly been good. Now, I didn't think he was that good in the Arizona start because, remember, he was giving up home runs and blowing leads. In fact, he blew two leads in that game. But he was okay against Milwaukee. He was good against Philadelphia. And he was brilliant against Houston, which I acknowledge. He was great against the Astros. That was the eight-inning one-run start. So really, since the Yankee debacle, he's mostly pitched well. So maybe that's what tricked the mind that, well, he's pitched well, he'll deliver. And yeah, when you look at this game, and we'll start with this game and then we'll go backwards. When you look at how they lost the finale of this series, absolutely, we can blame the offense. I mean, that goes without saying. They only managed five hits in this game. They scored two runs and that came late on the Mark Canna two-run double. They could not figure out Joe Musgrove. And when they had chances against Musgrove, they would either ground out into a huge double play or strike out. Second inning of this game, they get back-to-back hits from Jeff McNeil and DJ Stewart and Francisco Alvarez, who I know is impossible to rip despite him having a very, very rough Sunday. He had an amazing road trip. Grounds into a double play. They load the bases in the fourth with one out after back-to-back guys get hit, Alonzo and McNeil and DJ Stewart and Francisco Alvarez strike out. They get the leadoff man on in the fifth, and Luis Giorme grounds into a double play. They get the leadoff man on in the sixth, and Pete Alonso eventually grounds into a double play. So they had their chances against Musgrove. This was very different than the ear game back at City Field in the postseason because in that game, they had no chance. In that game, they had very few opportunities. They had opportunities in this game. So I don't want to ignore the fact that over the final two games of this road trip, the Met offense did nothing. They scored two runs, basically two meaningless runs. They came down 6 nothing in the eighth after getting one run the night before and only three hits. So over the course of two games, they scored three runs on eight hits. 
I mean, when you, when you think about it that way, it's atrocious. So I acknowledge that the offense came up small, but could you have set a worse tone for this game than what Max Scherzer did in the bottom of the first inning? And that's the problem. Like when you're an ace, let alone a guy making the money he's making, but I'm not even going to bring that up. When you're an ace, when you're a future Hall of Famer, when you're the guy in a big spot that fans want on the mound, look, go out and put up seven scoreless innings. Even if the Met offense does nothing and the Mets lose this game two to one because the bullpen sucks, at least we'll have a very different discussion. We won't be talking about the washed up Hall of Famer who all he's done since coming to New York has come up small in big spots. I mean, he could not have set a worse tone. First of all, Fernando Tatis Jr. hits a ball 400 feet that Max is lucky did not go out right then and there to make it 2 nothing. And what was it? He was ahead of the count, and I think it was either a slider or a fastball that just hung up there, and Tatis hit the crap out of it. And then Manny Machado, when it looks like, okay, maybe Max can get through this. They're second and third one out. He was lucky the Tatis ball didn't get out. He's also lucky Kim didn't score. So second and third one out, you can see a pathway to Scherzer getting through this. And he gets ahead of Manny Machado. I think it was one and two. Count works even to two and two. And then Manny hit the bejesus out of that baseball. And you could hear the disgust in Gary Cohn's voice. And you could feel the air coming out of all of our sails. Because the loss on Saturday, which we'll get to, it's going to happen. Like, you're not going to win 15 in a row as much as we want to see it happen. Like, Saturday was one of those losses. While it was frustrating, I accepted it. The key was, could they bounce back? The key was, could they win on Sunday and at least finish this road trip with a two out of three against San Diego, win the season series, and a five out of six road trip? And when Manny Machado hit the absolute crap out of that baseball, we all felt it. We all knew it. And really, no matter what Max did after that, you know, unless the Mets scored a bunch of runs and he held them down and he settled in. Like, yeah, maybe the game could have turned. But you could tell early on they weren't going to get that big hit against Joe Musgrove. And Max, you know, was okay for a few innings. And he worked out of trouble in the fourth. But you knew it. Max is due for a home run every three or four innings. And he gives up another one to Manny Machado. And this one was even more infuriating because he's behind 3-0. and and Manny goes opposite field, and it barely gets out in that jury box or whatever they call it at Petco Park. And there's the exclamation point on another crappy performance by Scherzer in a big spot. Five runs in five innings and no shot. And here's the problem. If you're one of those Mets got to sell kind of people, ask yourself, is a team going to be blinded by the resume of Max Scherzer, or are they going to see the reality? of Max Scherzer because the Mets are trying to fight their way back into a pennant race. And Max Scherzer has been a big, big part of why they're not. So is another team, even with the Mets picking up as much money as they're going to pick up, is another team really going to give you a great a prospect for that? It's just disgusting. Everything about this Sunday game was disgusting. Everything brought me back to the feelings of earlier this season, mad at the offense, Mad at Max Scherzer, mad at Buck Showalter. And look, here's my mad at Buck Showalter speech, and it's not why they lost the game. Number one, I shouldn't be mad that DJ Stewart's on the roster, or I can be mad that DJ Stewart's on the roster. I can't be mad at Buck for that because Billy Epler decided that for whatever reason they needed a basic, the crappier version of Daniel Vogelback, and that's amazing to say, to just stick up there. Like, what's the point of DJ Stewart being on this team? So Buck realizing, I got to play the guy eventually. Plus, Vogelback's terrible. Let me give DJ Stewart a chance to DH. And even though he had a base hit in this game, comes up with the bases loaded and one out and had no shot. No shot. So the lineup, not that I, I mostly liked it. I liked seeing Beatty in the lineup. Again, I like seeing, obviously, seeing Alvarez in the lineup. I mean, you know, God knows he shouldn't be sitting and he wasn't. You know, sitting Starling Marte and starting Luis Guillorme, I don't know, man. I mean, Guillorme feels very useless right now because his defense, we saw it the other night with the error he made, hasn't been as spectacular as it can be, and he gives you nothing offensively. But I think the issue I had with Buck was 
you're managing into the All-Star break. So the Mets aren't going to play Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. You have four off days. Nobody in your bullpen is going to the All-Star game. The only pitcher going to the All-Star game is Kodai Senga. You can manage this game aggressively. You can. Why not? You don't have to worry about Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. I'm not saying you manage it recklessly, but I'm saying that maybe TJ McFarlane doesn't have to come into this game in the sixth inning of a game that at the moment, I don't want to say it's close, it's 5 nothing, but you're trying to win. You're thinking to yourself, ah, let me keep it at 5. If it gets to 6 or 7 or 8, I'm done. So the McFarlane thing kind of bothered me. Grant Hartwig's been great. I can't rip that. I mean, he's he's turned into one of their better relievers, Grant Hartwig. He's going to start to get bigger opportunities because he was really impressive in this game. He came into a bases-loaded one-out jam, and he got Fernando Tatis Jr. to ground into a room-service double play. So I'm impressed by him. So the Buck stuff was more annoying, more, hey, final game before the All-Star break. I mean, there was a time where you would use starting pitchers coming out of the bullpen. Final game before the All-Star break. Why not manage a little bit more aggressively? But the truth is, the, the tone was set by Scherzer, and the tone was set by the offense that couldn't get big hits early, especially with 2-1, one out in the second, and bases loaded, one out in the fourth. The, here's Now, I, I don't know what Buck's thought process is, but does he still think that Max Scherzer is that elite pitcher and – he knows that Musgrove is going to be tough to hit, so let's make sure that our defense is as sound today as possible and get the Guillermes in there, get the DJ Stewarts in there. I think in the case of why Guillerme played, it had more to do with the fact that Starling Marte looked awful on Saturday. And maybe the thinking is, look, and by the way, he wasn't great on Friday, and when we get into the Friday game, he almost cost them the game. I mean, he grounded into a one, two, three double play with the bases loaded. So I think that had more to do with sitting Starling Marte and thinking, all right, if I'm going to sit Starling Marte, where do I want to go? I could go Marcana, which he'd eventually come in the game anyway. We'll get to the fam injury. And since, all right, I'm sitting Marte, who do I want to go with? I think the Stewart over Vogelback one was him actually showing for the first time a lack of confidence in Daniel Vogelback. And that's the way I took that, that he didn't want to play him. And what's funny about that, what kind of makes me laugh, is that Vogelback was coming off one of his better games on Friday. He had had three hits on Friday. Now, granted, two of them were infield hits. He had three hits. He got on base four times. He didn't play Saturday because there was a lefty on the mound, so I don't even include that game. And so it was funny that of all the days for Buck to say, you know what, I'm not going to go to Vogelback. It's a day coming off one of his better offensive performances from two days earlier. But I I do think you're right, though, Pete, that there are times where Buck's going to go onto the side of defense, especially because this team has been bad defensively for a while, like all the way around. It's, It's even infected Francisco Lindor, who, while he has been great offensively since the birth of uh, his child, it really coincides with that. His defense has not been great especially over the last couple of weeks. He hasn't been the all-around player. He's been great offensively, but his defense has gone backwards. So maybe the thought was, hey, if I'm going to sit Marte because he's lost offensively, let me upgrade my defense. The problem is Guillaume. I know he had that bloop double in the eighth inning. The double play in the fifth was a killer, and he's just not much of a threat offensively. Well, also the problem is that Max Scherzer sucks, and it doesn't make a difference if you can't keep the ball in the park. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Max Scherzer is a home run machine, man. It is. And you can live with it if there are two solo home runs he gives up per game. But when it's a three-run home run in the first and a two-run home run in the fifth, you can't live with it. The the other thing from this game, obviously, is the fam injury. It's nervous. It's nerve-wracking because fam took himself out of the game. You know, Tommy Pham, and this was the third batter of the game. It was when, um, actually, it was the first batter of the game. That's right. It was Sung Kim. Is that when it happened? Yeah, it was the first batter of the game because Kim singles to left and Pham goes to cut it off and hold him at first base. And it was a good play. He had the outfield assist a, a, a night earlier and you could see him. He aggravated something and then starts walking towards the dugout and it was revealed that it was a groin injury. I heard Buck after the game. It doesn't sound great. Now, the only benefit is that fact that they do have these four off days. So if it was a day-to-day situation, 
Maybe that causes him to not miss a start. But it sounds like this could be a couple of weeks. And remember, Tommy Pham has not only been really good mostly, he has played every single day in left field. They have run him out there in left field every day for about a month. So we'll keep an eye on that. We're not going to get an update for a few days, maybe by Thursday because they have that optional workout. We'll find out how serious it is. But he comes out of the game immediately. Mark Canna goes in. And Canna was actually okay. He drove in the only two runs of the game with the two-run double in the eighth inning. But that first inning was really weird because not only do you have the delay when Fam comes out, you've got the foul pop-up. And this is all within four pitches of each other, which is crazy. In fact, the foul pop-up was the first pitch of the game. So first pitch of the game is the foul pop-up the Mets challenge. The fourth pitch of the game is the base hit where Fam comes out. I'm surprised Max didn't use that as an excuse. You know, well, listen, we had a delay with this. We had a delay with that. So as far as the Kim play is concerned, if you didn't see it, Kim pops it up in foul territory. Brett Beatty goes over and looks like he makes the clean catch, but it's really close to the screen. Third base umpire DJ Rayburn very quickly says, ball hit the screen, no play. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Buck runs out to argue. Now, that's weird because why would you run out to argue? You could simply challenge it. You know, unless he's asking, am I allowed to challenge it? Which is, I guess, on the table that maybe that's why Buck went out there. So Buck goes out there to argue and then quickly makes that hand motion to challenge it. Gary Cohen was confused. He thought it was a crew chief challenge or a crew chief chief review. And why that's significant is because if you lose a challenge, the challenge is gone, and it's one pitch into the game. If it's a crew chief review, no harm, no foul. If it's a Met challenge, you really have to think to yourself, was it worth it? You really do, because it's the first batter of the game. It's the first pitch of the game. And while it would be great to get an out, you also have a replay coordinator that you would assume is looking at it, and is going to let you know, yeah, there's just no clear evidence that it didn't touch the screen. The Mets have done a lot of bad things in 2023 that are different than a year ago. And one of the things is that they have been sloppy with their challenges. They have not been great in winning their challenges. So that was a weird one. And it was right out the gate. And think about it, four pitches into this game, you got those two bizarre things. The screen challenge, and then Tommy Pham leaving with the groin injury. And then it all went downhill. Tatis double, Manny Machado home run. Goodbye, see you later. The other thing that was rather significant, even if you thought the game was out of reach at 5 nothing, was our guy Francisco Alvarez, who had a very rough Sunday, dropping a foul pop-up to an extended at-bat with Gary Sanchez, who then promptly rips a double and comes around and scores two batters later. So Alvarez, who's had his issues with those foul pop-ups, the rest of his defensive game I think has been great, but the foul pop-ups have caused him some an awesome angst. Turned out to be costly because it led to the sixth San Diego run. But overall, just a crappy loss, and it's frustrating to watch Joe Musgrove just get the job done against the Mets again. He hits four guys, none of which were on purpose, but he did it four guys in this game. They had opportunities and they couldn't get it done against the guy that they were all pissed off at last year for having a very shiny ear and a spin rate that was through the roof. And it's a part of why I go back to, I don't know, and I can't get into the heart of individual players, but the Mets all season long have come across like a gutless team. When you would think there would be revenge and there would be a big performance and there would be a let's show the Braves after embarrassing us last year, what happens? You have lost five out of six to them. You blew three leads in Atlanta, and you got swept. You're facing Joe Musgrove and the San Diego Padres, that team that eliminated you last year. Musgrove with the shiny ear and the crazy spin rate, and you go out there, 
and you managed three hits against them. This has not been a team that has responded to the challenges that you would hope they would respond to. Now, let's get to the rest of this series. Game one was a hell of a game, and game one was one of those weird ones, Pete. I was so effing tired on Friday night. 9.40 first pitch. They've been playing at 9.40 every single night. I had work during the day with Joe B. I get home. I'm hanging out with the family. I sit down. I get my scorecard ready. And I'm not, I'm not even joking. By 10.25, with everybody passed out, I said, you know what I got to do? I got to take a nap. Just going to take a nap. Just going to take a nap. I'll wake up. I'll be fine. I'm not going to sleep the night because how can I sleep the night not knowing the Met result? So second inning, because I'm telling you, it's early on. Second inning, we're down three. We were down 3-2 at the time, so it was the third inning because the Mets scored the run on the Lindor home run and make it 3-2 in the third inning. So 3-2, bottom of the third, whatever time that was, 10-30, 10-45. I say timeout. I got to take a break. My eyes are falling I'm going to pass out. And the last thing I want to do is pass out while the game is on. I got to pause it. If I pass out while the game is on, I could wake it up at any moment, and God knows what I'm going to see. So I pause the game. I go take a nap. The nap turned into the entire night. I mean, and that is a rare one, because I think I said this on a Rico a few weeks ago, that I, I had one of these situations on a Friday night where I went to bed, and then I woke up at like 2 a.m. and watched the game. That was not one of these scenarios. I slept. And all of a sudden, I look over at my phone. It says 658, which to me is a full night. Like 658? I got to watch the freaking Met game. I got a busy Saturday. I got to take both my sons to a multitude of birthday parties, all right? I got work to do. And by the way, the more I think about this story, I've completely effed it up time-wise. I got home because I, late because I never came home. I went to SmackDown with my oldest son and my wife. So, no, I didn't come home and hang out. I went to the garden and watched SmackDown. We walked in at 11.30. So now this is going to make more sense time-wise. I started the game on DVR, and in the bottom of the third inning, let's say 12.30. It's it's definitely later than 10.30 because I, was, I wasn't home. That's when I paused the game. I don't know if that changes the story all that much. But I just want to be factually accurate. Uh, no, but it well it now <laughs> makes more sense of why your eyes are burning at twelve thirty rather than ten thirty. Yeah, that's true. That that is true. It makes me look better, I guess. <laughs> Full night. I watched that brilliant bloodline segment with uh Roman Reigns and the Usos. My son loved every second of it. Great. So I wake up at seven AM and I'm like freaking rushing. Cause I know my kids are gonna wake up soon, and I know I got a lot of things to do. And it's the third inning. And little did I know the game was going to go 10 innings and be three and a half hours long. So I ended up watching about three innings without any issues. Then the kids woke up. I watched an inning while eating breakfast, all while scoring it, by the way, too. So I'm not just watching it. Like, I got the book out. Then I spent two innings on the toilet watching the game. In fact, I watched the Starling Marte 1-2-3 double play in the ninth inning on the toilet. I do remember that. And then I got off the toilet clean myself. Everybody's great. And I watched the last inning and a half on the couch. Yes. What's your question? Oh, oh, question. Do you have a TV in the toilet bowl or is your, your iPad? On my iPad. Basically I watched this game on my iPad and I was taking it with me everywhere I went. Cause that's a new level. If you had a TV in your bathroom, that's a new level of of craziness. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what's funny. I've realized other than the one room I have with the multiple TVs, especially for football Sundays, I actually don't watch the TV as much as I watch my tablet. Like, I think it's easier to have these games on my iPad because if I have to get up or move somewhere else, it's coming with me as opposed to, hey, now I'm going into a different room or I'm going here and I got to restart the whole thing. So other than when I'm kind of locked in in that one room, I tend to watch a lot of these games on tablets. But anyhow, as far as the game is concerned, Verlander, I'll give him this. He was very rocky early in this game, and he certainly wasn't helped out by the Luis Guillorme error, and we referred to that earlier that his defense has been shoddy. Guillorme made a bad error on a Xander Bogart's ground ball that should have ended that first inning, and it should have ended with only one run scoring. That led to the second run scoring. But Verlander was able to clean up that mess, 
He gave up a run in the second inning, and it was painful because it was Trent Grisham again. Barry Bonds was at it again. And the Mets, who had a rare early lead, are quickly down 3-1. to one. And, yeah, I'm cursing Verlander out. I think we all are. But Verlander at least settled in, and he gave him six innings. So a credit to Justin Verlander. And there's one play in this game that absolutely changed this game. And it's something negative that the San Diego Padres did. So while this is not, you know, a podcast about the Padres, I do have to point this out. San Diego against Justin Verlander, who's thrown a million pitches and has really struggled, has first and second and one out for Jake Cronenworth. And Jake Cronenworth lays down a bunt. And it was a really good bunt. And he actually beats it out. I thought it was such a horrendous play. What are you doing? You're Jake Cronenworth. I know you're not having the greatest year in the world. You've got the bottom half of your order coming up, including Gary Sanchez, who despite his early torrid start with the Padres, is hitting 191. Why are you bunting? Like, I know it worked and you got the base hit, but you didn't drive the run in. And that's what you should be trying to do. And from that moment on, after Cronenworth laid down the bunt, Justin Verlander kicked it in a high gear. Think about what happened. Two pitches later, he gets Gary Sanchez to ground into a 6-4-3 double play. And he cleans up that third inning. Pitches a 1-2-3 fourth. Pitches a relatively clean fifth. Pitches a 1-2-3 sixth. That bunt play is the direct line to Verlander settling down. So overall, give major credit to Justin. Rocky start, settles in. And gives him innings because six innings is, you know, at least in this day and age, that's giving you innings. And also credit to the Met offense because down three to one in the third against you, Darvish, a guy they've had issues with over his career, they battled back. I thought the Lindor home run in the third inning was huge. Two outs, nobody on, cuts into the lead. Sometimes you don't have to get it all back. That was sort of the problem with the Sunday game. It's not that they needed to get all of those runs back. It's that when your base is loaded one out, get a run in. I know we want more, but get a run in. Just cut into that lead. And that's why the Lindor home run in the third inning I thought was so significant because it cuts into the lead. And then when Lindor stealing second base in the fifth, it allows Daniel Vogelback to come through with a big RBI single to tie the game. And a credit to him. A credit to Vogelback. He had a good offensive game. He had a couple of infield hits and then the hit I just mentioned in the fifth, which tied the game up at three and made it a new game. From that moment on, It was very frustrating because the Mets had a lot of offensive opportunities to score in this game. Lindor fouled out with a couple of guys on base. And then obviously the ninth inning. The ninth inning was, (laughs) there's no Met fan alive that with bases loaded one out in a tie game in the ninth inning and Starling Marte up, there's no Met fan alive after Marte grounds into a one, two, three double play. Do they think the Mets are going to win? And I'm sitting there on the turlet at 8 a.m. And there's no way the Mets are winning this game. No way. that. Meanwhile, the result happened nine hours ago. But still, no way they're winning this game. No shot. Drew Smith's pitch in the ninth. No shot they win this game. And Drew Smith gives you a clean inning. Now we get to the 10th. And here's the way I look at these extra inning games. If you're on the road in an extra inning game with the Fugazi Manfred man on second, You have got to score that run at minimum. You score the run, okay. I think you have a decent chance to win, not the end of the world if you're the home team, but you have to score that run. You don't score that run, and I don't know what the stats are. I'm sure they're overwhelming. You don't score that run in the top of the 10th inning. You're done. So the Mets get that runner on second, nobody out in the 10th. And Jeff McNeil, who has had such a crappy season, but I I give him his credit here, Gave us no agita because the first pitch was the RBI double. Two pitches later, Francisco Alvarez, RBI single. He had a four-hit night. So they get you the two runs, but bigger than that was Lindor again. Because Lindor's two-run single turns a two-run lead, which, while it feels good, it's really a one-run lead. Because think about it. The tying run is coming up in the bottom of the 10th inning. See what I'm saying? Like, if you score one, if you score two runs in the top of the 10th inning, 
all you've really done in the real world is giving yourself a one-run lead. Because that runner on second doesn't mean a damn thing, right? Because you're down by two. So it's like the old rule of being down by a run in the bottom of the 10th inning because the guy coming up to lead off the inning is the tying run. Does that make sense, what I just said? It, it makes sense. It sounds like you. It sounds confusing, but it makes a ton of sense. Thank it makes you. a ton of sense, Michael. <laughs> that, 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 that is it. Thank you. So the Lindor two-run single was huge because that turns this kind of mini lead into a bigger lead. And Lindor had an absolutely great night. He had three hits. He stole a couple of bases. He hit the home run. He had the two-run single. And then when David Robertson comes in for the 10th and gives up the home run to Manny Machado, I didn't even I didn't bat an eye because that's what you should do. You're David Robertson. You have a four-run lead. Yes, there's a guy on second. You got to throw strikes. Like, you cannot somehow allow San Diego to get the tying run to the plate And he didn't. He got Tatis out. Sure, he gives up the home run to Machado. Who cares? He strikes out Bogarts. He gets Cronenworth out. And the Mets get themselves a tremendous victory. If you think about how we all felt, for me, Saturday morning, but for most humans, Friday night, or when you found out the results Saturday morning, we are at our peak. We're at our high. Six-game winning streak. 4-0 and on this West Coast trip. A tremendous win against you, Darvish, and the San Diego Padres. Down 3-1. to one. You come back and you tie it. You win it dramatically in the 10th. And you win it after Starling Marte crowns into a 1-2-3 double play. Which, I'm telling you, if I, was a, if I was up live, I would have done a snap poll like I did with the Scherzer thing. Like, all right, are we going to win this game? It would have been 98-2 to two that we were not going to win this game. But we did, and it was a great win. And much like during the, the badness of this season, we've talked about, is this rock bottom? Is this rock bottom? Is that rock bottom? Unfortunately, that win may have been our highest moment of the season because the response on Saturday and Sunday has been and was massively disappointing. The game on Saturday was just simply, they had no shot. And, and a part of me just wants to tip my hat to Blake Snell and say, look, he was brilliant. It is what it is. Oh, by the way, one other thing, because there's one thing from the Friday game I forgot. I think I've hit on everything, but I don't want to forget this. The Tommy Pham outfield assist in the seventh inning was also monstrous because the Padres tie game get a one-out double by Sung Kim, and he's trying to go to third. And Pham almost deked him by taking his time in left field the Ricky Henderson, as I like to call it, where he politely picks up the baseball. And then he guns Kim out, and it was even bigger because the next hitter, Juan Soto, also ripped a double. Not that the exact result would have happened, but I thought that was a big play in the game. And another reason why Tommy Pham, even on a night where he didn't do much offensively, has been so good for this team, and him being out with his groin injury could be significant. Now, let me get to Saturday. Uh, David Peterson, he was all right. He was all right. I I don't hold Peterson to the same bar that I would hold Max Scherzer or Justin Verlander. With David Peterson, it's just keep me in the game. And he pitched into the sixth inning. He really had one bad inning. That was it. And one mistake that Matthew uh, Betton, Betton, whatever the hell his name is. Batten. It's the Batten. Yeah, he Batten. batted it up. He had a two-run home run with <laughs> Peterson ahead of the count, too, which is always so frustrating. And that was it. Like, that, that was literally it. You know, Peterson after that pitched very, very well and got into the sixth inning and would have gotten two outs into the sixth inning if not for another Francisco Lindor error who had a very bad defensive night on Saturday. So I thought Peterson, I know five and a third innings, three runs may not look great in the box score. I think if you watch that performance, you walked away saying, hey, look, he was good. And you start to believe that maybe Peterson is putting it together. It starts to at least... Get in your head then. All right. You know, it's it's a couple of good starts in a row since he's been recalled, and it really came out of nowhere. I wasn't for him being recalled, especially with the way Joey Lucchese was pitching, but Peterson's pitched well. The problem with Saturday is strictly the offense and strictly the fact that he, I would get and accept they couldn't hit Blake Snell, and I would play that game of let me tip my hat to Blake. He's had a very good season this year. His stuff was electric. He had no-hit stuff. The Mets were able to work three walks against him. They had a one real good opportunity in the sixth inning when they had two on one out for Lindor and Alonzo. And Lindor actually made really good contact. He just did it right at Tatis. 
So I'm willing to do the hat tipping with Snell. What frustrates me is that you had nine outs against the Padre bullpen. So you had an opportunity in a 3 nothing game to come back. They did get the Alvarez home run, and he's been on you know absolute tear on this West Coast trip. But they did nothing against Luis Garcia. They made Nick Martinez look like Cy Young. He struck everybody out. And they gave you a little mini tease in the ninth inning because Lindor got a hit off Josh Hader to start that ninth inning. And then Hader went to work and dominated Alonzo and dominated Alvarez. And he got McNeil to ground out. The Alonzo one was tough because Pete has had, how do we define his season? He has been slumping for a very long time now. The batting average is dipping very, very low. And you're waiting for Alonzo to just break out. Not with one hit, but with consistent hits. Because he's had his moments. It's more, can Pete get hot? Can Pete have, you know, a 15 for 35 run? You know what I mean? And it's not coming. And I thought in that ninth inning against Tater, especially with Lindor starting it off with a hit, uh, maybe this is where it happens. Maybe Pete rips a double up the alley and they're set up with second and third, nobody out against Tater. And it didn't happen. He is striking out at an alarming rate. His batting average continues to dip, 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 dip. He took an 0 for 3 on Sunday. He was 0 for 4 on Saturday. And even on Friday, he got on base three times. He was 0 for 3 on Friday. So he was 0 for San Diego. He did have the good performance in the finale against Arizona when he hit the home run and had the RBI single. And I thought that was, okay, he's going to break out of it. And he responded with what's, I think, an 0 for 11, 0 for 12 run. The last two at-bats against the Diamondbacks and what I just mentioned against San Diego. So Pete, and maybe it's the Derby that's going to wake him up, but Pete's got to find himself in the second half. The Saturday game was all about, really, I mean, it wasn't just about him, but it was about not doing anything offensively. Other than the Alvarez home run, they just did nothing. And it was a frustrating game to watch. At least it was quick. It was two and a half hours. But they got absolutely mowed down by Blake Snell in the Padres bullpen. Well, And here's the thing about this. I understand. I, I said it too, like, tip the cap to Blake Snell. He looked pretty good with 11 strikeouts and however many innings he pitched. I mean, he struck out seven of the first eight guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was pretty ridiculous. But the one problem I had is I think out of 105 pitches, 60 of them were strikes, but they swung and missed at a lot of stuff that was in the dirt. Like, I know his stuff is filthy, don't get me wrong, but he wasn't all that – he wasn't over like throwing balls over the plate. They just couldn't catch up. He was deceiving them, and I think they could have worked more walks. They were just I, – I don't, I don't know. Like, in that, you have to be able to be more patient against a guy like Blake Snell. And they have been. I mean, their track record against Blake Snell is pretty good where they've worked his pitch count high. They've gotten him to walk four or five guys in a game. Uh, Blake Snell's a tough customer, man. He really is. He's a free agent at the end of the year. I'm not sure if I want to sign him or anything. <laughs> Probably not. Well, him but... or Severino. Who would you take, him or Severino? <laughs> the Severino one. You know what? <laughs> He'll come cheap at least. I'll tell you yes. that. <laughs> Severino may not cost me very much. Uh, Blake Snell's had a very good year, though. Yes, his ERA is under three. He walks a ton of guys. He strikes out a ton of guys. You know, it's not as easy. I think sometimes we sit back and say, why are you swinging all these pitches out of the strike zone? Because they're nasty. That's why, because he's he's a tough customer. And he was very, very difficult to beat Saturday. There was a lot of, I felt, I, I accepted Saturday's loss. You know, I was frustrated by the fact they couldn't hit their bullpen. But I also know when you have a six-game winning streak, as much as I would want it to be a nine-game winning streak or a 15-game winning streak, you're not going to win every single game. My key with these winning streaks so that when they end, you got to start a new one. So you win six in a row, you lose a game, then you got to respond with four in a row. Because you do that, that's the run that the Mets need. And unfortunately, they responded to their six-game winning streak with a two-game losing streak. I, the one thing I will say is, I, again, I, I understand Saturday. I kind of don't even mind Sunday because they're going to the All-Star break. Like, I... I I would hate for them to win the eight games in a row, go to the all-star break, and then start being crappy again and be like, oh, well, if they just had more, they, they finally found their stride, they took a day off. And then that, that kind of killed their momentum. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm fine with them losing two in a row, and let's, let's up ticket yeah, after the all-star break. But, but, By the Pete, way, Pete, Pete, they don't have the, they don't have the time to lose two oh, in a row. Oh, I get it. 
this no, six games under 500. They are eight games out of a wild card spot. Like they got to make their move now. I know. And they will. I feel confident. By the way, the one thing, the one thing about Saturday that you have not, you mentioned early, but you have to kill him. Francisco Lindor defensively lost his game. That second inning was, was mostly on him too. Yeah, it was, um, it was rough. So Sanchez leads off with a double. Then you've got a ground ball to shortstop by Cronenworth. And I don't know if Lindor would have thrown him out. This one was not called an error, but it was a ground ball to shortstop and Lindor could not kind of get rid of the baseball. I think it would have been a very close play at first base, but if he throws him out, there's a runner on third one out. And now you've got yourself a chance to get through it. Then you had that really weird play where Brandon Dixon, the DH, had a fly ball to right field, and Starling Marte just didn't catch it. Like, he didn't get to it in time and was able to throw out uh, Cronenworth at second base. The problem was the home run. So, yeah, Lindor had a bad defensive game. Luckily, the two errors that he made in the sixth and eighth inning did not come back and haunt them because none of those runs scored. So, really, the defensive play that may have had an impact in terms of runs being scored was that ground ball to shortstop by Cronenworth, which it's not an error, and I don't know if he throws him out at first base, but he bobbled it or he couldn't get the grip of it, and it turned out to be an infield hit, and it set up San Diego with first and third nobody out. but. It was the one mistake by Peterson. The other errors by Lindor were a little alarming. He has not had a great defensive season. He hasn't. Now, his offensive numbers now look good. You know, the home runs and RBIs have been there for a while, but his batting average has been rising. His OPS has been rising. And I think when you just think about what his final line is on pace to be, you realize, wow, that's one of the best shortstops in baseball. It really is because Xander Bogart's numbers aren't looking anywhere close to that. Carlos Correa's numbers aren't looking anywhere close to that. Trey Turner's numbers aren't looking anywhere close to that. So all these high-priced shortstops who Lindor is in the same group of, I mean, right now, if you had to pick any one of those guys, who do you want on your team? The answer is going to be Lindor. You know, we just watched Xander Bogart's for the week. Yeah, his average is a little bit higher. He's got 10 home runs and 35 RBIs. It's not quite 19 home runs and 60 RBIs. Not quite. So Lindor offensively, fine. Defensively, especially over the last few weeks. It's not just him. It's everybody. Like guys who are supposed to be good defensively have not been. Now, I know Nimmo overall has had a great defensive year, and lately he's made some good catches, but he even had the two significant miscues, one against the Yankees, one against the Phillies. It's infectious. You know, the one guy who I think mostly has been good, even though he made an error the other night, is Pete. Pete Alonso, even during this offensive slump, has made some very nifty plays over at first base. No, I I agree. We said that from the beginning of the season, and for the most part, he has been pretty flawless. And I think that was the credit to him trying to work harder because we talked about his war numbers and blah, blah, blah. I don't think he gets any credit for his defensive skills. A lot of people minimize what he does. And I I think that they're overlooking how good defensively he's become as a first baseman. He's had a a really good defensive year. So I think it was on the last Rico I had mentioned how the Mets had won a game and they had won a game where Alonzo and Lindor did nothing. And there was something kind of cool about that because it seems like they only win when they're productive. And I think the game I was talking about was the July 5th game when Alvarez hit the game-tying home run and then Canna hit the game-winning RBI triple. Lindor was 0 for 4. Alonzo was 0 for 4. And even the night before, the day before, they only had one hit by Francisco Lindor. Alonzo took an 0 for. Lindor didn't do much other than that. And they won. And made the comment to you, hey, it's always great when they can win and not get a lot of production out of Lindor and Alonzo because it feels rare. Well, we've got some real loyal listeners to the Rico who feel like they should do the research for us sometimes. And I appreciate that because there's a lot of times we do the research for you, but Jimmy Kearney did the research for us. Now, I want to make something clear. Jimmy seems like a great guy. So did I fact check Jimmy Kearney? I did not. I did not. (laughs) I am trusting Jimmy Kearney. I am trusting he didn't just email us and make up stats. Now, if you want to fact check Jimmy Kearney, you're more than welcome to. And then you can send us an email, the RicoB at gmail.com saying, hey, guys, 
you remember when you waxed poetic about Kearney's statistician and all the stats he gave you? Well, they're all a bunch of crap. So I will give everybody that opportunity. But what Jimmy did was he looked up how the Mets do when Lindor and or Alonzo don't perform. And I'm going to read you his exact email. In 2022, that's a year ago, Pete went 53 games without a hit. Okay, there were 53 games where Pete Alonso did not get a base hit. The Mets record in those 53 games. You want to guess? You want me to just tell you, Pete? 53 games without a hit. I'm going to say they went 10 and 43. Well, that's crazy. <laughs> 10 no? and 43. <laughs> no, they were. <laughs> they were they were they were twenty two and thirty one. They were nine games under five hundred. Francisco Lindor had thirty eight games without a hit. The Mets were sixteen and twenty two. They were only twelve games during the entire season where neither guy got a hit. The Mets were four and eight. That's a record of thirty four and forty five when one or both guys didn't get a hit. Now, last year, the Mets won 101 games. So when they got a hit, their record was 67 and 16. Overwhelming. This year, and this is as of, I'm not sure if he included, you know what? I think he did include Sunday. I think Jimmy sent this email like after the Sunday game. So great work by him. 90 games into the 2023 season, the Mets are 16 and 18 when Pete is hitless and 11 and 22 when Lindor is hitless. There have already been 10 games, 10 games, which is almost as many as last year, when Pete and Lindor have both gone hitless. This does not include Pete Elston, obviously, because he wasn't playing. The Mets have a 3-7 and seven record. So clearly, the numbers have backed up what we've all thought, which is they don't hit, they don't win. Like, it's a rarity for the Mets to win games when Alonzo and Lindor aren't productive. Lindor has been productive, especially over the last few weeks. Pete Alonzo has been not, has not been. So keep it in mind as this season rolls on. A uh, couple of other things. Amir Garrett was DFA'd by the Kansas City Royals. Amir Garrett, you'll see his ERA and say, wait a second, it's not that bad. What's going on? He walks everybody. His control's a major issue. He's had a lot of traffic. But would I bring him in? Of course I would, because the Mets need to try things without costing themselves their farm system. So no one is going to say, especially now at, you know, six games under 500, yeah, they got to go make a big trade. I'm not in favor of that, but I am in favor of ways to try to improve this roster. Acquiring Trevor Gott made sense. All it cost was money. And they're giving him a flyer, and they're going to see what he can do. And so far, two performances in, not bad. Amir Garrett's a local kid, obviously, played at St. John's. He's a big, tall lefty. He's had nasty stuff. He's had major control issues. He's a project, I'll admit it. I don't expect him to come in here and dominate, but why not? Why the hell not? So, yeah, I'm all for it. He'd be replacing TJ McFarlane. That's that's the easiest argument to make. I mean, when we sit here, and I don't do this as much, but I know a lot of Met fans do. I've heard you say it. Salah said it. Get rid of this guy. Get rid of that guy. The reason I don't do it that much is not because I love these guys, but it's because I also know what the hell's the alternative. Now, you could hate Drew Smith all day. To say get rid of Drew Smith, what with, with what? Like, who's coming in and pitching those innings? Don't take this as a defense of Drew Smith or Adam Adovino, whoever else you rip, but you need someone to come in. Amir Garrett, not that he's that much better of an option, but why not? So KC's DFA'd him, bring him in. He's one other thing. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Pete. Your your take on that. And I I don't, I'd say he's only 31 years old. It's not that old for a reliever because we saw Tommy Hunter being rolled out left and right at 36 or whatever, whatever he was. This is this is a perfect rebound spot for him. If he wants to save his career at all, this might be a final stop for for Garrett, and this is a good opportunity. He's going to get opportunities if the Mets can pick him up. If the Mets are ever going to be the Dodgers like they want to be or a successful team year in and year out, there are a lot of ways you can get there. They're obviously spending. But one of the other things they need to do is develop pitchers and find reclamation projects and fix them. 
You've got to do that. Now, no team is perfect, but I can sit here and give you examples where teams have done that, where the Atlanta Braves have done that, where the Houston Astros have done that, even where the Yankees have done that. I mean, Clay Holmes was not exactly a top-line reliever before the Yankees acquired him. So Amir Garrett's the kind of guy where, hey, if you want to be a winning organization, you have to bring guys in sometimes and turn them around. And Amir Garrett certainly has the stuff, so why not? And speaking of the Dodgers, Keith Law, who writes for The Athletic, did a a countdown, did a ranking. And usually I don't really care about these rankings, like, ooh, who's the 10 best shortstops? It's just opinion. What does it mean? I, I don't really care. I don't get nuts about that kind of stuff. But what I do like with rankings is of things that we're not as familiar with. You know what I mean? Like, who the best shortstop is, yeah, we could all look up the numbers and try to assume. Farm systems. We are not knowing everything about every farm system. We try to know as much about the Met farm system as we can, and that's very difficult. So Keith Law is an expert on farm systems. Doesn't make this list perfect. It just means it's it's interesting to look at where he ranked organizations in terms of their collective farm system. Not the top, top prospect, but all of it, the entire system. He put the Mets 15th. Okay, you know, middle of the pack is what it is. Nothing embarrassing. But here's what jumped out at me. Do you know what team was number one with the best farm system in Major League Baseball, according to a well-respected writer named Keith Law? I I, want to say the Braves, but it's going to be something stupid like the A's. No, it's the Los Angeles Dodgers. And the reason why that jumps out at me is that the Los Angeles Dodgers traded so much in their farm system over the last few years in attempting to win. Like they traded for Trey Turner. And Max Scherzer. And they gave up a bushload of prospects. And yet they have replenished so much that they got the best system in all of Major League Baseball. So when Steve Cohen talks about being the Dodgers, to me, that's where it's at. Where you could have such a loaded farm system that not only are you developing guys. I know Miguel Vargas just got sent back down to AAA. And Josh Altman hasn't had the greatest year in the world. But you continue to develop guys who can help you at the major league level and then also have the pieces to trade for Trey Turner, which they did a few years ago, and Max Scherzer, which they did a few years ago. And I hope the Mets can get to that point. (laughs) I, I really do. Not just having a system where guys come up and help this team, but where you can use those pieces to acquire guys who maybe put you over the top and help you win a World Series. I think that's a great testament to what the Dodgers have pulled off, that they are so good every year, and yet they maintain this loaded farm system, and yet they have the ability to use that farm system to trade for players to help them in the short term. And that's where we got to get. That's where the Mets have to be. So coming out of the break against that same team we're talking about, the L.A. Dodgers, Justin Verlander is scheduled to pitch the Friday night game. Kodai Senga is going to pitch the Saturday game. I guess that's dependent on if Kodai pitches in the All-Star game. Congratulations to him. He's going to the All-Star game as a rookie. And then our buddy Max Scherzer will come back on Sunday afternoon against the Dodgers and probably crap the bet because that's what he does. So it's going to be a challenge. They have the Dodgers coming out of the break. They do have the White Sox, and the White Sox have had a miserable, miserable season. And at some point, You know, we've talked about how they need a long winning streak. They had the six-game winning streak. That is not enough. They got to get to 500 quick. Like, to me, Pete, they got to get to 500 by August 1st. Is that asking too much to get to 500 by August 1st? No, I think that I think that's a, a good spot, and I think that they have plenty of time to get there. I know it's it sounds like the, sh- the season is much shorter now, and it is, but, I mean, they have till, what, they have three weeks left, four weeks left. Is it three weeks, 21 days? Whatever it is, man. Well, they've I- got... 15 games left in the month of July. So there's six games under 500. So what do they have to do to get to 500 with 15 games left? They've got to go. Uh, yeah, this doesn't feel realistic. <laughs> they got to go. They have, and wait, four. They're, they're six. <laughs> Who are they playing? How, they how weak is the go, schedule? They have to go 11 and four to get to. They would actually be above 500. They go 11 and four. They would go into August 1st, one game above 500. Now, here are the teams they're playing. Three against the Dodgers. Can they win two out of three against them? Yes. Okay. Three against the Chicago White Sox. I think they have to win all three, basically, right? I bet they could struggle versus them. Okay, continue. Three in Boston against the Red Sox. Yes. 
two in the Bronx against the Yankees. Yeah, so win one game, yeah. And then four at home against the Nationals. Yeah, they're going to be like eight and eight and eight and seven, probably, eight right? Eight and like, seven? I mean, let me I, tell you something right now. Treading water is not enough. Okay, that is that is not eight F, and seven is not good enough. Hey, can I tell you something? Here's the ridiculous thing: if you look at the teams they just beat, they beat the Giants, who were how many games over five hundred? They beat the they swept the the Diamondbacks, who were in first place in their division, and how many games over five hundred? And they go against the Padres, who are identical to them, and they get embarrassed the last two games, and that is the problem. They're going to face Chicago, who is not a good team, and they're going to face Washington, who's not a good team. And those are the two teams that scare me more than anybody else. Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, they have they have crapped the bed against bad teams. It's the honest truth. We get to a couple of a couple of your emails. We will have a Rico Bronia that we will post midweek during this All Star Week, in which we recap the first half. We'll go through the best wins of the first half, the worst losses of the first half, and my favorite part: we're going to hand out awards. We're going to name the MVP of the first half, the Cy Young of the first half, and the biggest bust of the first half. couple of emails. Lucas writes, Scherzer ruined the offseason for us, and now he ruins the all-star break for us. He'll announce he's picking up his options so the torture continues for another 15 months. Oh, the pain. Daniel writes, I was born in 79. I've loved the Mets since 86. I live and die with any every game. Anyway, after today's awful loss, Sunday's awful loss to the fathers, I was reading a popular Mets fan blog thread. It astonished me that there was so much angst about all the other failings of this team. Max Scherzer has consistently pitched not well enough in the biggest games since the Mets signed him as a free agent. And since the end of the regular season, his performance has stopped the Mets from winning big games that excellent teams win. That's the risk you take when you sign a nearing-the-end mercenary. He's been okay, but he's paid to be the top of the league, and he's not there anymore. I wish the fan base would stop searching for reasons why the Mets are disappointing. Diaz being out, Scherzer and Verlander being just okay. It's as simple as that. Residual impact of those three things are massive. I think those are three of the main things. Like, you're right. And, and, you know, we could do a list. And you know what? That's a great idea, Daniel. We're going to do a list on that mid-All-Star Week podcast as well, as well as all those awards. We will list our reasons for why the Mets suck and why this has been such a disappointing first half. And I think those are probably the main reasons, but there's a lot of reasons. When you're this bad with this much talent, there's a lot of reasons. Charlie writes, I have an odd feeling Pete's going to break out of his slump right after the All-Star break. I think the Derby is going to give him the opportunity to relax and change his approach. I know the Derby is known to do more harm than good, but I honestly think Pete just needs to relax and swing the bat. Now I got to get to the email that says Pete Alonso is a selfish bastard for doing the home run Derby. Because I have that in the mailbag as well. Here we go. Isaac writes, with Pete Alonso struggling, whether it's for injury or slump, wouldn't it be smart to rest and clear the mind and not do the home run derby? With this selfish behavior, is it time to not extend Pete and trade him for a top-end young starter and eventually use Alvarez Pareda platoon catcher at first base? Isaac. <laughs> so we got one guy saying the derby's going to fix Pete. And Isaac's saying, he's a selfish guy. Trade him. <laughs> what, what do you, honestly, what is your opinion up here right now? Because I think it's multifaceted. I think that you're right. That he was struggling before he got hurt. But I think that the injury is still nagging him right now. I think it's both. Yeah, I think it's both. I think if he wasn't slumping prior to the injury, it would be easy to join the chorus of saying, hey, he came back too early. I think Pete is having a very odd year. He's been better defensively, like we talked about. The power numbers are there. I mean, he could still hit 50 home runs this season. Like, it's on the table that he has a 50 home run year. But the average is just sinking like a stone. He's striking out a lot. I always think, or I thought over the last few years, that he's gotten a bad rap as like a slugger first. Like, he hits a lot of home runs, but he's a good hitter. And I think he's a better hitter than people have given him credit for, but not this season. So, he's not having a great year. 
I hope he turns it around. I am not in favor of trading him like Isaac suggested. I'm also skeptical that you would get back what you want because he's a guy who's going into his free agent year. That's the truth. Pete, next year, that's a contract year. So if you're another team that would be trading for him, what are they giving up? Like, think about it. And I'll give you an example. I'll give you a straight-up example. Would you trade Pete Alonzo to Cleveland for Shane Bieber? No, I, I wouldn't personally. Yeah, I mean, they're both. Is it Bieber's not signed long term either, right? That's my point. That, that's exactly why I brought him up. I brought him up because he's in the same boat. I don't think an organization is going to give up like four uber top prospects for a guy who's a free agent and they may not sign. And that I'm ignoring the fact that I don't. I don't want to trade him. I want to extend him. Like I'm leaving that part out. But when people bring up trades, let's think clearer about what you're getting back. And let's be realistic about what you're getting back. Now, I just made up that Bieber thing. I'm not necessarily saying Cleveland would do that or or whatnot. But, you know, Isaac writes a top-end young starter. Well, Shane Bieber's a top-end young starter. And here's the other thing that's scary. Sandy Alcantara, when we talked about him during the offseason, would have been a dream acquisition. It's coming off a of Cy Young. He's young. He gives you big innings. He has had a terrible season. And you start to kind of fear pitching. Like, you need pitching. You want pitching. But I'm scared of it, man. Like, how many guys are that reliable? So the way I view starting pitching, and we'll talk a lot more about this as we head to the offseason, is that I'll give you the money and I'll risk the money. I'm not risking top prospects. I'm not risking trading, you know, a slugger like Pete Alonso. That I don't want to risk. I don't want to do it because the pitching is so volatile. There are very few guys who are consistent year after year after year. It's a very short list. We do appreciate all the emails. I got to meet Casey Manning the other day. Casey writes emails all the time. Casey showed up to fan baseball, so it's good meeting him. And we do appreciate all the emails at the RicoB at gmail.com. We will give you another Rico Bronia midweek during All-Star Week as we recap the first half. And then, obviously, second half begins in earnest on Friday night against the Dodgers. Obviously, if there's any other breaking news or something crazy happens, we'll try to fit in an instant reaction when we can. We do appreciate you listening and downloading another edition of Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. 